Hi, everybody. What's going on? Um, the Giants game is going on. I know that. Um, so don't be, don't tell me anything. I want to be encouraged in the Lord while I give this. Um, uh, we are, we are continuing our series in the Ten Commandments. And here's kind of what we're doing is that Jalen last week preached on the first commandment and sort of into the second commandment. I feel like your sermon was like one, one and, and half of two. Mine, I feel like, is like half of two and then mostly on three. Because the first three commandments, and most scholars would say this, very much kind of make up a construct of things. They're, they're foundational to the rest of what goes on in the Ten Commandments. And so if you remember, hopefully as we work through this series, you'll have a better and better grasp and memory of what are, what are the Ten Commandments. Right, it starts with this beautiful introduction of, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. A reminder of the one who is giving this law is the one who has liberated them, the one who saved them, the one who's shown his superiority to the gods, um, uh, the most powerful gods in that time in the known world, these, these Egyptian gods that, that were vanquished um, when the plagues were sent and God outstretched his arm to save his people. That's who's giving this law. And then the first commandment, as most people, and there's different ways, this is where it gets a, a little funny, there's different ways of counting uh, the commandments, but really the first commandment is what? No other gods. No other gods, um, you shall have no other god before me. Uh, Jalen defined this as single-minded allegiance. I love that. That's, that's, that's probably the, the couple-word summary of that first commandment that I would want in your head, that we are called to... This is, what it, this, this is what, like the aha for me and what Jalen said, is the, not only are we called to single-minded allegiance, but it's precisely because we were made for single-minded allegiance that when we worship that which is not God, it is, it is such a rival to our worship of God because we are created for single-minded allegiance. Therefore, we are by definition not to be, like you put it, polytheistic creatures who have many gods, who hedge our bets, who diversify our divine portfolio by saying, I'll put a little bit over here, a little bit over here, a little bit over here, and a little bit. No, no, no. That is a divided heart. That's a fragmented person. And that's not what we were created for. We were created to be single, uh, integrated persons with single-minded allegiance to one God. And God, of course, is saying, and that one God is me, which gets us into the second commandment, which is what? That's third. What's second? No idols. Good. You shall not make for yourself any graven image, blah, 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 and on it goes. And, and as Jalen put it, this is a very specific, contextualized command because they're being called out of hundreds of years, centuries-long worship of this polytheistic, um, idolatrous, uh, quite literally, that, that idols were worshipped in this culture. And God is saying, yeah, that's got to stop. That, that's, that's over now. That type of worship is over. And I, the Lord your God, you can't wrap your arms around me, much less make a statue of me. I am the creator of all things. Therefore, to worship a created thing is to worship something other than me. Again, single-minded allegiance, which gets us very much into the third command which is what we're talking about this morning. And the third command, which we haven't even read yet, 
Exodus 20, by the way, is where the, the version of the Ten Commandments, there's two different versions. There's also one in Deuteronomy. But Exodus 20 is the one that we're familiar with. So reading up until where we are today, we have. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. One. Two. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. I wonder what you hear when you hear that. Here's, I'm, I'm going to blow up some categories right at the start here. Because how I, I was a kid who grew up in church. How I always understood this one was, if you're going to use an expletive, don't put God's name in there, right? And so there were certain ones, like there was cursing, and then there was breaking the third commandment. Right? Like, you don't want to do that. Um, um, basically, that's not what this commandment is saying. Let me say this, mini sermon at the beginning. That's a good thing not to do. <laughs> do not take the Lord's name in vain in that way. Right? Like, maybe that's what your grandmother said to you or whatever. Like, that's a good thing to obey. God's name shouldn't be raked through the mud in that way. But that's actually not precisely what's going on here in the third commandment. And it starts with understanding properly uh, the, the wording of it. In the original language, a little lesson for you. Thank you for that. Um, a little lesson for you. This was written in, anybody know what language this would have been written in? Hebrew, yeah, good. So in the original language, um, you have, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The, you shall not take the name, which we somehow um, have turned into, just take it on your lips, take it into your language. Um, is really this much more profound word for, uh, literally, it's carrying something. It's, it's, it's bearing something. It's, it's putting something on. You shall, not, you shall not carry, you shall not bear the name. Uh, most scholars would, would probably like that last one best. You, you shall not bear the name of the Lord in vain. The, the place where this is pretty cut and dry what's going on here is actually, um, well, let me, let me do this. There's an Old Testament scholar, great Old Testament scholar, named Daniel Block, who wrote kind of the authoritative uh, commentary or these books that you write about, different books of the Bible, these giant books. You know, you're covering this much material, but the book is this big. And so this is a real authority on the Old Testament, Daniel Block. And he says the idiom, uh, the, the phrase, bear the name, the idiom derives from the ancient practice of branding slaves with the name of their owner. To bear the name of Yahweh means to claim him as one's owner and to accept the role of representing him. To claim him as one's owner and accept the role of representing him. At issue is Israel's status and function as the people of Yahweh. They may not claim Yahweh as their covenant Lord and then live as if they belong to Baal, who's, who's one of the ancient gods. Fill in the blank. As though you belong to 
this culture, as though you belong to the pursuit of some other God. So it means to claim God as one's owner and to accept the role of representing him. Let me show you this, too. So this was said of the, um, if you're aware of some of the, the Jewish sacrificial system, the, the Old Testament sacrificial system, one of the key figures in that was the high priest um, who would go in once a year. You, you maybe have heard this, would go in once a year. We just celebrated Yom Kippur. Um, who would go in that once a year on the Day of Atonement and represent the people uh, in, in the Holy of Holies, in the very presence of God. Listen to how that's originally described uh, in the law as handed down to Moses. This is in his Exodus 28. So Aaron, that's the first of the high priests. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastplate of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. He bears the names. Literally, he would, he would put the names of the tribes of Israel on his breastplate, part of his part of his, his priestly garment, and in bearing that name, he would bring that name before God. He would represent all of, all of Israel before God. Right? This is the role of a priest, is to, is to stand between humanity and God, to bring humanity before God, and then guess what that priest would do when he left that place? He would be representing God to the people. He would come out as a representative, having just done business with God. Right? This is what we see with Moses, who we've been talking a lot about in this series. Moses would go in. We, we saw this in, in our intro, where he went up the mountain, had interaction with God, represented the people to God, said, God, you know who you're dealing with, right? And God was like, yeah, 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 I know, they're, they're stiff-necked people. And then Moses comes down the mountain, and he's with the people. Guess who he now represents? Not the people, but he represents God bearing the name. Now you have God, who as part of his rescue of Israel, as part of winning them out of slavery, he says things like, Pharaoh, let my people go so that my firstborn son might worship me. I have brought you out that you might be a people for my own possession, my treasured possession in the world so that you might represent me to the world. All of that in the ancient world are various ways of saying, Israel, I have placed my name upon you. You bear my name now. You are Yahweh's people, no one else's people. And right here at the beginning, instead of just dealing with coarse language, God is dealing with the entirety of their lives and existence as a people and saying, do not bear that name in vain. This, this phrase, in vain, is this great word that, and, and in vain captures it pretty well in English. But a couple of the other translations of it are um, to bear it in futility, to weaken, to weaken it, to, to rob it of the substance that is actually there, to, to bear something unworthily, Right? That might be language that you grew up with where we talk about the communion table and don't come to the table unworthily, right? unreflectively. I think the one that, that really hits it home is it says, um, 
Actually, the, the very first definition that sort of the, the authoritative uh, Hebrew dictionary gives is to bear something in vain is to strip it of its reality, to bear it quite literally in unreality. God is saying, don't, don't bear my name and strip it of the reality of all that that means to bear my name. And he says, I won't leave you guiltless if you don't take this with utter seriousness. I just want to track this idea of the name of God through the scriptures. And this is going to be a wild romp through the scriptures, but I just want you to see how important God's name is throughout the, the biblical story. And so you just saw that the priest bears the name of the people, but, but now there's also this awareness of what the people do to God's name. So go to Jeremiah 7. It's Jeremiah 7, verses 9 to 11. It's a prophet on behalf of God. This, these are the words of God to the people of God saying, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known. What does that sound like? What is it? It's 10 commandments. Yeah, yeah, that's like, a, that's like a backwards list of the 10 commandments. And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. By the way, whose lips does this end up on? Have you? Yeah, right, have you made my father's house? He's actually quoting, I don't know if you realize that, he's actually quoting the prophet. But notice the emphasis here. When you disobey the Ten Commandments, you bring dishonor to the name. That's what God's concerned about. In other words, it makes sense that this comes as the third command. Because to break all the other ones is essentially to break the third. You're profaning the name of God. Listen to the psalmist. Listen to the prayers of the people of God. This is a prayer of repentance. But, but listen to the concern here. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us. For we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? A foremost importance in our obedience is what our obedience and what our disobedience does to the name. And so the psalmist is saying, God, if for no other reason, not because of our worthiness, but because of what this means for your name, right? And what is God's name? To bear God's name is to bear the reputation of God, right? That's probably the best modern concept of it that we're talking about how God is understood, what, what, what people think of when they think of God. That's the name of God, right? It's, it's not just one word. It's a far grander concept. Listen to this in one of the most famous prayers of repentance in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel. This comes right at the end of Daniel. Now, therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant, to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate, 
Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas because, uh, before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. all the way to what Toby read for us, which is probably the, the most um, significant Old Testament prophecy in Ezekiel 36 about what God will do when God intervenes in human history. These beautiful realities that he'll clean us from all our uncleannesses, that he'll replace our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, that the law will be written on our hearts rather than merely externally on stone tablets, that it'll be written inside. What's fascinating, though, is how it starts. A lot of times we don't read the sort of introduction to those beautiful promises. I'll just read it again, what Tobi read. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. Isn't that stunning? <laughs> not for your sake that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them as if they didn't hear it. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And there it is. There it is. So easy we can miss it. How will God vindicate? In spite of the people? It says, when through you I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations gather you from all the countries, being, again, freeing them from slavery, bringing them out of their enslavement. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God had placed his name upon Israel. Israel was utterly aware that its failure to be faithful to that call had profaned God's name. They try again and again to get themselves right, to clean up their act, to bring and vindicate the holiness of God's name. God says, no, 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 this, this is too grand for you. This is something that I have to do. I will do this. And the question that's begged by a passage like Ezekiel 36 is, how? <laughs> how? How? After centuries of failure, how could the script possibly be changed? Could there be anyone capable of actually bearing that name in the way that God has actually called Israel to bear that name? And so bursting onto the scene is this Jesus and what's extraordinary about Jesus is that again and again, and I don't have time to, to do this, there's plenty of sermons out there where we do this, but again and again, the name of God is placed upon Jesus. The, the worship of the one and only God is received by Jesus. The reputation of God is completely and utterly wrapped up 
into the person of Jesus, such that you have him saying things like, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Then you have a passage like this from Philippians 2, a series that we did not long ago as a church, right after this beautiful hymn that talks about how Jesus actually does what no one else would do, which is lays aside the pursuit of his own glory, is completely obedient to the Father, even to the point of his own destruction and death, and that that is the means by which you and I are freed. As a result of that perfect obedience, as the one who actually bore the name perfectly in the way no one before him could, this is what God does. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the third commandment, being obeyed at last, and God fully entrusting his name his reputation, his public persona, his image to the Son. And saying, in him is perfectly fulfilled what has only been the profaning of my name by my people heretofore. So what does this mean for us? Um, What does this mean for us? Here's one thing that it means. Pam, go, to, go two slides down to that first Peter passage. Listen to this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the, you're supposed to say name by now every time I stop, for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. He's like, not all suffering is equal, right? Don't just be out here like, my life is hard if your life is hard because you're wrecking it, right? He's saying there is a difference here, right? Sometimes we take all suffering and we say, oh, God can use it all. It's like, no, 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 no. Don't get it twisted. Like, this is faithfulness to Jesus-type suffering. This is actually representing Jesus' name in the world kind of suffering. Yet, verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. What's the name there? Let him glorify God in that name. What name? It's it's Christian. That's the way this reads. When you're persecuted because you're a Christian, that's the moment to glorify God. You know why? Because it means you're bearing the name. Someone says you're only doing that because you're a Christian. Or you do that because you're a weirdo. You're a Christian. He says, glorify God in that moment. That's a moment where somehow, amazingly, God is causing you to actually fulfill the third commandment. You're bearing the name. Because guess whose name we bear? This is what's extraordinary. 
Even that name in, in Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus, every, we bear the name of Jesus, right? Like he's our big brother. He's, he's part of the, the, the human family in a way that's very unique within the Godhead, such that we bear his name is the most common way for the New Testament to talk about. So when you're called a Christian, which is this word that they came up with back in Antioch, where they said, and, and what's beautiful about the church in Antioch, that you can find this in Acts, is that it's this very multi-ethnic city, kind of like Jersey, right? Like, kind of like Queens or something. Like, very wild place where there's all these different cultures. And yet they're watching people from all these different cultures actually come together and love each other well, and they're worshiping the same God, and they don't have a name for it because there's no cultural like precursor to it. There's nothing to quite wrap their minds around. And they're like, well, who's the God they worship? They, they say they really love this Christ guy. So fine, we'll call him Christians. And it literally says it was in Antioch that the people were first called Christians. And when we bear that name with our brothers and sisters way back in Antioch, and people actually know we're a Christian, it says glorify God in that. This is a glorious moment. Here's what's hard about that. Bearing the name of Jesus in the world such as it is almost always comes in the midst of suffering. That's what this pastor is saying. Beloved, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you as though something strange were happening. It could just as easily right there say, because you bear the name. You bear the name of Jesus in a world such as this. You will go through suffering. Because we do not live, because bearing the name of Jesus is, is, is against the wind of this world. Bearing the name of Jesus also means people that we're people like Jesus who are acquainted with grief, acquainted with loss. We're, we're not fake when it comes to that stuff. We're not superficial. We say, yeah, this world is not how it should be. Therefore, I can grieve and mourn and feel the weight of the brokenness of this world. I'm being a Christian when I do that. To bear the name of Jesus is to bear the life of Jesus. And to bear the life of Jesus, as Paul says in about a hundred different places, means we bear a cross. To bear the name of Jesus means that we follow him. And to follow him, he said, if anyone would want to follow me, he must take up his cross daily, die to himself, and follow me right? That's why it's in the midst of a passage where Peter is talking about suffering that he says, don't forget you're bearing the name and that that's a glorious thing. You were made for this, right? You were, you were, created, you were created for single-minded allegiance. You were also created to bear the name of God. And the human story is that our first parents bore that name and then were unfaithful. They bore it in vain, they acted against the reality of who they were. They acted in unreality and then did not bear that name. And so when we're restored to the family and bear that name again, we're finally where we're always created to be. That's the promise here. Practically, what, is, what does all this mean for us? I got three things for it. And they track with in the intro sermon uh, to this series, I said the, the Ten Commandments do three things. They reveal the character of God. They show us what kind of God we're dealing with. They remind us that God is a missional God, that his purposes aren't isolated to his people, that he's actually a God who's always moving outward. And then three, 
The Ten Commandments define for us what true freedom is. Those are the three points of my intro sermon. They reveal the character of God. They remind us that God is a missional God, is the word that I used. And then they define true freedom for us. I think the third commandment is a great illustration of all three of those. One, they, they remind us what kind of God we're dealing with. They reveal the character of God. How does the third commandment reveal the character of God? It reveals that God is the kind of God who represents himself through people in the world. That's who we're dealing with. God has made us specifically, but this is what it means, the very related concept to bearing the name is to bear the image of God. To be, by the way, that's one of the reasons why the second commandment is there, is we're not to make images, because we are the image of God. Which means that we're made to represent him in the world. That's a beautiful theological concept and a very sobering reality. It's a beautiful theological concept because it means the human being to your right and left are of supreme importance to God, of cosmic significance that, would, that will blow our minds one day how much God is vested in human beings above any other creatures in the universe. It's a sobering reality because it means we have a responsibility. As those who bear the name, there is a reality that there are people whose primary view and understanding of God will be formulated by their experience of us. Right? That should sober us. There, right? This is what we see all the time is in these horrible situations that they make podcasts about where these churches have these abusive, terrible cultures where people are at odds with each other. You know what happens a lot of the time to the people in those churches? They lose their faith in God. That's not a mistake. That's not something that God goes, wait, why would that be? No, God says, yeah, you've profaned my name among those people because I've placed my name upon you, and you bear a responsibility to represent me. That's sobering. I don't think that this ever, by the way, I don't think that this ever comes down to an individual bearing this alone. Right? Like, I don't think that God, right? I used to, <laughs> growing up in youth group culture, you can be told things like, some of your friends, you're the only Jesus they'll ever meet. Um, that's a lot to put on like a 13-year-old. And I don't even want to put that on you as a 50-year-old. Is I, I think that that's a, a, even that's a wrong view of the way that God works. I think that God is always working around. Like, even you think of your friends, like they definitely knew other Christians. So, young people among us. Your friends know other Christians. It's not all on you. But I think that ideally, it's about a community representing that. Which, by the way, we're going to talk a lot this year about evangelism. This gets into my second point a little bit. But this is why a community needs more porous boundaries, if that makes sense. It's why we need people around us. It's why you need to start inviting people to Sunday gatherings, why you need to invite them um, to stuff that, that people in our church are doing together. It's so that they might, <laughs> partially it's to lighten the burden on you <laughs> so that you can actually introduce them to some other people and say, hey, maybe, maybe they can show you parts of God that I can't, not that you would ever say it. Don't invite someone to a party and say that. But <laughs> You know what I'm saying, right? This is something that we as a community are to do, is that we very much represent God in, you know, Middlesex and the surrounding communities. Like, 
Jacob's well is a primary strategy, not the sole strategy. It's a primary strategy that God has. Thankfully, we've got a lot of other churches around us doing a lot of really beautiful things. But we're part of that strategy, y'all. We should feel that we should be sobered by that. Say, oh, that really matters about the way that, that we are in this world. Because we have the kind of God who primarily works. Did you notice in Ezekiel 36, he says it's through you, not in spite of you. He says, in spite of you, I'm going to work and act and save and change you. But then it's through you that I will vindicate the holiness of my name. Second thing, Ten Commandments are meant to remind us that God is always moving out, that he's a missional God. Bearing the name of God in vain has to mean, especially for us, people who stand on this side of the cross, resurrection, and the Great Commission, it's got to mean that we all have some responsibility to share that with others. Here's what's so beautiful. The Great Commission, Jesus' last words to his followers before he's taken up is, um, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, what? Go and make disciples of all nations. What's the next part? Teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you and baptizing them in the... Isn't that interesting? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is not really relevant to, the, to necessarily uh, the sermon, but can I just say this because I thought it was cool this week? Notice that it's the name... Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not the names. Baptizing them in the names of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit. The name. Because in the same way that the name that was revealed in the Old Testament is Yahweh, on this side of the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we understand that the name of God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's one name. It's one God, but revealed to us in three persons. That's why we baptize in the name, singular, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? That's the name that we now bear. But because those are the last words of Jesus on his lip, that means, look, there are some, and we'll do a whole thing on this in the spring, on evangelism. There are some of us who are exceptionally gifted at evangelism in the way that we think of it. You can sit across from someone, have a great conversation about faith. Yeah, we need you. We need you to show up and to be that and to have that boldness. But all of us bear some responsibility that the world might know that there is a savior. And that doesn't have to look the same for all of us. But look, y'all, we live, I'm saying y'all a lot. Somebody said I said y'all a lot. Now I'm like very aware of it. We live in central New Jersey. Do you know that everyone in central New Jersey isn't a Christian? Are you aware of that? Some of you are like, I'm not a Christian. I know, and we're glad you're here, right? Like, that means, and look, here's what I love, here's, as elders have been talking about, man, our heart is not so that we would grow, not so that we could move, do numbers and all that stuff, but our heart is we want to see more people go from spiritual death to spiritual life in Jesus, right? Here's what it's not for lack of in this church, in this church. It's not for lack of, of relationships with people who don't know Jesus. Y'all have overlap. You do. I don't think we're a Christian bubble. Not yet. God help us if we ever are. Like, this is why we keep your schedules light. It's because we want you to hang out with people who don't know Jesus. We've got to figure out, what do we do from there, right? How do we bear the name not in vain? We have deep relationship. When we know these people, we're crying with these people. We know their lives. We have opportunities. And one of the things that encourages me so much is every now and then someone pops up and is like, I shared Jesus with someone. I don't know if I did it perfectly, 
But I, but, but I went for it. I just said, hey, that, right? Let me give you a simple, this is from our Archbishop, Tim Keller, as Jalen named him last week. <laughs> Tim Keller's a pastor in New York City who I love, and so that's a joke, but maybe a little bit. Um, <laughs> Tim Keller always said about evangelism, um, he would say, look, I'll give you your line tomorrow. When someone asks you, what'd you do this weekend? Say, I went to church. We talked about the Ten Commandments. I found it meaningful. He's like, that's your big evangelistic opportunity, right? Oh, I went to church. We're actually talking about the Ten Commandments. It was meaningful. Because what does that invite? Whew. Tell me more, right? We think, we think that's, whew, that's amazing. Put yourself in someone else's side, right? Someone who's in another faith or something. Hey, we had off on Wednesday for Yom Kippur. What did you do, my Jewish friend? And they say, oh, I actually went to temple and it was very meaningful. Whoa, with the proselytizing. No, no, you're just, right? They're just sharing their life. You should be curious about that. That's a beautiful thing to be curious about, right? We make it, I think that, and by the way, I think part of the reason why we make it so weird is because the name has been profaned. Because you say, I'm, I'm a Christian, and you, you just want to say in 6,000 ways, I'm not that type of Christian. You still bear the name, right? You still bear the name. And you have an opportunity to say, yeah, I don't do it perfectly, but I was at church on Sunday, and it was meaningful to me. And you might be surprised by the conversation that that starts, right? You don't have to start with, if you were to die tonight, what would you say to God, okay? <laughs> like, can we get that out of the way? Say, I went to church, we talked about the Ten Commandments, I found it meaningful. And you might be surprised how quickly you get to Jesus, right? Okay, that's the second one. Third one, it defines for us true freedom. I love this one. This, this, this hit me this week. I think that to bear the name of Christian in vain, uselessly, to, to strip it of its reality, is to either, right, this is where the true freedom thing comes in, is to either live as though change, transformation, actually becoming what Ezekiel 36 says we will be, which is people who obey from the heart, people who vindicate the holiness of God by being different. It's to act as if that change is either impossible or unnecessary. Okay? What do I mean? To be a Christian, is to fundamentally believe that God has called you to himself and that in placing his name upon you, there's a promise embedded here. It's not just don't bear the name in vain. It's God saying, when I put my name on you, it's not in vain. Do you hear that subtle change makes it a promise? So many of these commands are that way. There's a promise here. I don't put my name on you in vain. So don't participate in the unreality of saying it was in vain. Because change is possible. It's promised in Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. Check this and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Part of the promise of the new covenant, God's new relationship with humanity is, I will change you. This ain't moral perfection. 
There's no promise of moral perfection here. That's why the only one who we bow to ultimately in the end, the only one to whom God fully gives the name is who? Jesus. He's the only one worthy of that level of identification with God, this side of the resurrection. But God has placed his name on you, and part of placing that name is this transformation that's guaranteed here. So to say these words never belong, if you want words that violate the third commandment, it's these words. That's just who I am. I've always been that way, always will be. That's just my Enneagram, right? Oh, well, I'm really mean to people because I'm an Enneagram, whatever, right? No, 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 no. We don't get to say that, right? God wants to, is committed to transforming us. Therefore, us staying in it and saying, oh, this is just who I am, or saying, I can't really get through that, or that sin will always be true in my life, that is bearing the name in vain. You are stripping the reality that the Spirit of God now lives in you. Okay? Bearing the name also means acting as though change isn't necessary. Because here's what this can become. This can become, well, I think then you're saying to bear the name means I have to be a perfect Christian. And so let me put on my perfect Christian face lest I violate the third command. No, no, no. There's a pendulum swing here. Because also to bear the name Christian means you are fully and utterly dependent on someone else. Right? The way into the Christian faith, if you don't follow Jesus in this room, can I tell you, one of the worst ways that we Christians break this commandment is when we act like we have it all together. Here's a secret I'll let you in on. Anyone who's in here who's actually a real Christian got in by saying they're a total mess. And guess what? We still are. This is what it means to be a Christian, is that we say, I need a savior. You don't need a savior unless you, you're in a situation that requires something outside of yourself to pull you out, right? This isn't moral rehabilitation. This is spiritual death to spiritual life, nothing less. And that process is brutally, painfully slow. Okay? And so any of us who say, I've arrived, may God's mercy be on your soul, right? To bear the name Christian is to actually bear in imperfection as a default mode of your life. This is why Christian arrogance is so unbelievably oxymoronic, right? It is to be an arrogant Christian is to not be a Christian at all. Because to bear the name of, of Christ is to say, he's the only one who gets it right. That's why I need him. That's why I need to be adopted into him. That's why I need his righteousness. That's why I need him to work upon me. Because, precisely because I can't do it myself. And so let's not be the Christians who in this area go out and say, if you come to my church, you can have it all together just like everyone that I sit with on Sunday. That's a violation of the third command. Just as much as saying, right? This is what we then want to go to, right? These are our little whoo, pendulum swing. Is then we want to go to, oh, we're just like everybody else. Come to our church. We're just like everybody else. I get what you're trying to say. That's an equally dangerous. God forbid we be just like everybody else. 
We better care more about holiness and righteousness. We better be frustrated by our sin. You know, one of the best ways to know that you're walking in, in actual spiritual life is you're frustrated by the stuff you still do that you wish you didn't do. And don't get it twisted. That's a different reality. Tell someone that. Say, hey, I know that we do the same stuff. I want you to know it really bothers me. Because there's actually something at work in me that's saying, no, it's not impossible for me to change. Would you like that hope too? There's a great book about this concept by uh, a theologian named Carmen Joy Imes. And she, um, it's called Bearing God's Name. Literally, and it's, it's a great thing to read if, if you're a, a theology person. It's a great thing to read during the series because it's a great summary of the events of Exodus and everything. And one of the things that she points out is she says, um, you've, you've heard, if you've been around our church for any amount of time, you've heard me talk a lot about what it means to bear the image of God. Bear the image of God means we represent him in the world. What she says is there is a, there's a sort of a, a theological clarity that's needed because while it's true that all people bear the image of God in some sense, right? everyone bears that image and therefore has inherent dignity to them, it is a covenantal, I'll use that big word, it's a covenantal reality, it's a relational reality to bear the name of God. That the name of God is distinct from the image of God. The name of God is family language, right? Who bears your name? Your family members, right? By and large, right? but it's a, it's, a, it's a familial reality. We are the people of God. We are brothers and sisters of Christ, sons and daughters of the Most High God. My prayer is that we would realize all of what that means in terms of that change is possible, that Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross was not a mere exchange of paperwork, y'all. It was a change of reality spiritually for your entire existence. He is changing you. He wants to change you. But it will never be complete until the day we go and see him face to face. Let's not act like it is complete. That helps no one. To be struggling in a room full of people who apparently have it all together is one of the most isolating experiences of your life. I pray it never happens here. I'm sure it has. I pray maybe we can start and say, no, I won't profane the name that I bear in that way. Here's one of the last scenes. I'll end with this. Here's one of the last scenes in Revelation. This is from Re Revelation 14. This is where we're headed. This is the promise of where things are going. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and for the Lamb. May we be counted among that number, who one day will be so transformed that his name can be here, right? So utterly transformed, having followed the Lamb faithfully our whole lives, that one day he so identifies with us that it's as though his name can't but be marking us on our forehead.